bloodied bodies cut apart, all mangled in this, the ninth pit of the fraudsters in the giant eighth circle of fraud that makes up Dante's Inferno. If you're having trouble with that math, you might have just dropped in here and need to go back because this is the podcast Walking with Dante and I'm Mark Scarborough and we've been walking a long time through Dante's masterwork comedy and we are far down in the lowest bits of hell. Well, not quite lowest. I can't use this superlative quite yet, but we're getting close to them. We are at Canto 28. Eight of Inferno, where it lines 91 through 102, only 12 lines in this episode of the podcast. This is as slow a walk as you can get, but after all, here comes another figure in this, the pit of the schismatics and scandal mongers. We've discussed all of what that could possibly mean, and we're going to talk more about it in this episode of the podcast. We've already met Muhammad, we've already met Muhammad's son-in-law Ali, and we have met an obscure historical figure, Pierre da Medicina. And now we are moving on because Pierre da Medicina has pointed out somebody who he says has found the sight of a city extremely bitter. Who is that? Let's pass on to lines 91 through 102 of Canto 28. It's going to be Pierre who is speaking. Well, first the pilgrim and then Pierre who is speaking in this passage about a third guy mangled and walking with him. If you'd like to see this translation, it lives on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can drop a comment there engage in the discourse or just read along with my English translation. And I to him, indicate the guy and fill me in if you want me to take that news back up top. Who's the one who found the sight of that city so bitter? At that, he laid his hands on the jaw of one of his fellow travelers to wedge open his mouth, saying, here is the guy, and he can't speak. This one, while in exile, drowned the doubts of Caesar, promising him that if a guy is ready, he always harms himself with further delays. Oh, how forlorn he seemed to me, with his tongue cut out way down in his throat. This curio, who used to speak so fearlessly... Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about who Curio is down here in this Ninth of the Evil Pouches. I'd like to untie several knots inside this passage, including one that I made for myself back in the days when I was teaching Dante in classroom settings, and that now I realize was an error. I want to talk to you about that. Interesting that, right? And then I want to talk about three observations I can draw from this passage, and that we might want to think more about. This is Gaius Scribonius Curio the Younger, born about 84 before Common Era, died in 49 before Common Era. This uh, Curio was from a storied and, what do I want to say, prominent Roman family during the days of the Roman Republic. He came to politics through his family, and he was originally aligned with 
Pompey and the various Republican forces in the Roman Republic. But eventually, this curio, well, received a bribe and switched sides. He sided with Julius when war broke out and Julius was declared an enemy of the Republic. Curio voted against removing Julius from the Roman government. His vote was one of the few, and Curio fled Rome at that point to attempt to join up with Julius. When he actually does meet Julius, that is the Julius of Julius Caesar, Julius sends him on to Sicily, where he drives out Cato pretty easily and without much of a fight. By driving out Cato from Sicily, then this Curio can take over the government of Sicily. And the most important part of that is he can take over the grain stores in Sicily. And those grain stores will allow Julius to solidify his control of the Republic, turning it into the empire with himself as Caesar, because those grain stores in Sicily will ultimately come to feed the city of Rome, the seat of Julius's power. Driving out Cato led to disastrous results for Cato. Cato went to Africa and Curio also crossed over to Africa. Ultimately, Curio was killed in a battle with African forces sort of aligned with Pompey, certainly aligned against Julius, mostly aligned for themselves, these African forces, but marginally or in name allied with Pompey in the great civil war that follows the war that ultimately Julius wins. You should know that it is probably not true, but it is a medieval legend that Curio is the one who encouraged Julius to cross the Rubicon. The reason that's probably not true is if you follow the historical dating through the story of Gaius, Scribonius, Curio, and Julius, and Julius's civil war with Pompey and the destruction of the Roman Republic, <laughs> the founding of the Roman Empire, all that stuff. If you follow all of that, Caesar has already crossed the Rubicon by the time Curio Curio meets up with him. So it's a little bit funky in the dating, but certainly most people in the Middle Ages believe it is Curio who has pushed Julius over the Rubicon and into the full brunt of the Civil War, the full breach of the Civil War. Where they get this from is from Lucan's Pharsalia. And in fact, Lucan's Pharsalia in Book 1, line 281, Curio is the one who gives the famous line, Semper nocuit differere paratis. My Latin is terrible, but something like delay is always lethal to the guy prepared or delay is always deadly to someone who is already prepared. This may be possibly one of the most quoted Latin lines aside from those in the Vulgate translation of the Bible in all of the Middle Ages. This line from Lucan's Pharsalia in which Curio basically says, hey, you know, if you're ready, then any delay is just what's going to be lethal to you. 
This is an infamous quotation used by many different people, including Dante himself in another spot. We'll talk about that in a minute. Lucan tells the tale of Kiru advising Julius to cross the Rubicon. Again, this is probably not historically the case. Dante is probably following Lucan's Pharsalia to get to this conclusion. And Dante is also picking up the description of Curio from Lucan. The line in Lucan's Pharsalia in Book 1, line 269, is this. Curio came along with them, he of the fearless heart and venal tongue. That probably plays into this passage, the venal tongue, because at the end of the passage that I just read you, it says Curio, who used to speak so fearlessly, now looks forlorn. It's probably playing in the background of Dante's passage. Certainly the big line, delay is always lethal to those prepared, is playing right into this passage and is translated into the medieval Florentine inside this passage itself. That's a bit about Curio, the historical references, the way the Middle Ages probably got it wrong because they're reading Lucan and not more documentary historical sources. That is this figure here, someone who goaded Julius on to the great civil war that ultimately destroys the Republic and founds the empire. Now let's go back to the passage and look at it itself. Let's start at the beginning. So the this figure, Pierre da Medicina, has told Dante the Pilgrim that he needs to go back up to the world above and warn a couple guys about a coming disaster from a local Romagna warlord. Dante the Pilgrim says, okay, I'll go back up and say that news. If, in fact, you tell me who it was that found the site of the city so bitter. I want to point out here that Dante does fulfill his promises. This is an important function in the social contract, and we seem to have a canto about the social contract, about schismatics and scandal mongers who break the social contract in various ways. And Dante, we see here, is fulfilling his promise because, after all, the words reported to these two, Guido and Agnolello, to watch out because they're going to be thrown overboard in a weighted sack— well, it's here. It's in comedy. It's in this canto. So Dante does come back to the top and give the news, <laughs> thereby, as you know, complicating the reality claims of comedy. Then you'd have to believe that Dante was actually in this pit and that he actually heard someone say, tell them that, oh, the reality claims get very difficult here. But if we accept the reality of the canto, and I think Dante wants us to, then we can see him fulfilling his promise. Of course, behind all of this is some postmodern nightmare in which everything stated and every reality claim given is in fact fictional and crafted. But oh, that is a bigger subject than just the schismatics, one we have touched on a lot already in this podcast, and one I just want to point out to you in this passage in which we can say, hey, Dante fulfills his promise, except, well, the very promises he himself crafted and the very news he himself crafted in the very pit he himself crafted in the very social context he himself crafted with the very characters he himself crafted. <laughs> wow, I feel that I'm suddenly in a Italo Calvino novel or in a Borges story or <laughs> in some mid 
career Philip Roth novel. But yes, in fact, it is just that insane in its reality claims. Okay, what else can we say about this passage? One of the things that I can point out is that Dante's speech is fractured. Remember in the last episodes, I told you I've had to work out the speech of these schismatics and scandal mongers, and I've had to kind of rearrange their lines because their lines are out of order, and their lines are fractured in the same way they wanted to fracture the church and society. Well, this passage starts out with actually a fractured line from Dante the Pilgrim. He says, indicate the guy and fill me in. If you want me to take the news back up to the top, who found the site of that city so bitter? Now, I changed this and made that third line a question. Who's the one who found the site of that city so bitter? But it's actually just a dependent clause hanging off the back there, modifying guy. Indicates guy and fill me in. If you want me to take the news back up to the top, who found the site of the city so bitter? That's a fractured way to say it. Dante's speech is fractured. Is this indicating his place among the schismatics? After all, Dante himself was engaged in all kind of political intrigue. We've talked about this when we talked about Cavalcante amongst the heretics. We talked about Dante's place in exiling Guido, uh, the, whose, whose father stands up next to Farinata. Dante himself was involved in the political trials and wars of the whites and blacks in Florence and was also perhaps involved in the Gulf Ghibelline Wars that were tearing apart central Italy. Are we to hear now that Dante himself is fractured like the schismatics, this has been an ongoing concern in comedy. How much does the pilgrim take part in the sins of those around him? Does the pilgrim find Brunetto Latini sexually attractive amongst the homosexuals? Does the pilgrim have too much lust and faint over Francesca? Is the pilgrim gluttonous for more news with Chaco amongst the gluttons? Does the pilgrim express a suicide wish, possibly with Pierre de la Vigne, amongst those who are violent against themselves? This is an ongoing question inside of comedy and one that we can't necessarily answer. Just know that it is a rife debate in criticism and many people find the pilgrim complicit in many of the sins in Inferno. The problem here is you can't argue for consistency. For example, when Dante sees the hoarders and the wasters way up there rolling their rocks around the pit and bashing each other into their pits, there is no real way that we could say at that moment that the pilgrim is guilty of some kind of avaricious impulse. So the problem here is that it's not exactly consistent. With Ferenata, I can't say that the pilgrim is guilty of any sort of Epicurean heresy, nor can I say that he expresses a heretical viewpoint, although he may be committing some political heresies by suddenly finding himself on some level aligned with the Ghibelline Ferenata. It's not consistent throughout, but it does seem to exist down there somewhere, some way in which the pilgrim is a sponge for the various sins of hell, not all of them, but some of them. And maybe we can find that here in the fracturing 
of the Pilgrim's speech, and maybe for another reason, but we'll talk about that in the next episode of this podcast. Let's just keep going down through this passage. Pierre da Medicina lays his hands on the jaw of one of his fellow travelers to wedge open his mouth because, as we discover, this guy's tongue has been cut out. And he says, here's the guy, and he can't speak. Here's an interesting thing, and I kind of want to bring this up because I kind of like it. I used to teach this as an inconsistency in comedy. Let me explain. We know that Pierre da Medicina's throat has been slit. His nose has been gashed off. One ear has been lopped off. And in order to speak, he opens up his windpipe with his hands and talks to the pilgrim. That's how he's speaking right here. And I used to say, oh, wait a minute. This guy's missing a tongue. He And somehow he can't speak. What's the deal? You, you, Pierre proves to us that you don't need a tongue because he opens up his windpipe and speaks out of his windpipe. So there's an inconsistency here. I mean, I mean we've been told essentially you don't need a tongue to speak. <laughs> okay, you know what? It's so dawned on me as I was working on this very podcast episode. All these years, I've been wrong, 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 wrong. Why? Because I we were told that a tongue is not necessary to speech. What we know is that this fellow Curio doesn't have his throat split, so he can't open up his windpipe and talk. But he doesn't have a tongue, which means he can't talk. So there's actually no inconsistency here. I made a mistake in teaching this passage for years. And let me tell you, I used to build giant interpretations off that mistake. I used to say, well, here's the deal. Dante has made a rare gaffe in comedy. He has now, you know, first said that this guy, uh, uh, his throat slit and yet he can speak, but this guy doesn't have a tongue and he can, but see, you don't need a tongue to speak. And then I figured out that one of them doesn't have his throat slit and so can't open up his throat to speak out of it. <laughs> so I would make these huge comments about inconsistencies and I would say, okay, now you have to decide is the inconsistency intentional or unintentional. If it's unintentional, then it's a rare moment in which, as we say in literary criticism, Dante nods. That is, he kind of nods off and isn't paying full attention. Or we could say it's intentional. And then, of course, I would jump out and say, oh, but see, it's inconsistent in the text. Just like in Islamic art, because we've had Muhammad, there has to be an inconsistency in the geometric designs. They always have to have a slight error in them. And so Dante is picking up this Islamic aesthetic thought and even reproducing it here. All this based on my own mistake. Let me just back up and say something about this because I think this is really important to say. Back in the days when I was teaching, of course, you ultimately always have a first or second year undergrad who will say to you, listen, a poem can mean anything. So how can you ever give me a C or a D or an F on my paper? Because any poem can mean anything you want it to mean. And I'd 
always have the same argument. I'd always say, okay, here's an Emily Dickinson poem. Does this poem say, you know, we read the poem and I'm like, does this poem say that Electrolux vacuum cleaners are the best vacuum cleaners your money can buy? Well, of course not. The poem can't say that. And then I would say, okay, if the poem can't mean that, then that means it can't mean one thing, which means it can't mean anything. There is a limited range of choices. If I can line out one thing that the poem can't mean, that means a poem can't mean anything anything. That means actually there's a limitation, a horizon of meaning in interpretation. And I think that's important here for me to point out my mistake inside of comedy over the years of teaching it, because it is always important to try to figure out where, in fact, the logical line of interpretation lies. How far can you push it out? Here, I realize I've been caught stepping over the logical line because I didn't pay close enough attention to the text. And so I stepped over it and led myself out into some grand airy statement about Islamic architecture and Islamic geometric design in this passage that starts off with Muhammad in this canto. I stepped over the line. And I think that that's really important to note here as we talk about Dante. It's important for me to always try to readjust the logic line, the rationality line of interpretation and try to see what I can say and I can't say. And it's important for you to do the same. As I've said 50 billion times, how I wish we were doing this over glasses of red wine at a table. <laughs> it's always red wine with me. Sorry, just not a white wine drinker. Anyway, how I wish we were doing this at a table over glasses of red wine or whatever you choose to drink because we could then talk it through together and figure out where these logic lines fall and see which of us is stepping over the horizon of interpretation inappropriately. In other words, it always has to come back to the logic of the text itself. This one, it says, while in exile, this is what Pierre da Medicina says, drowned the doubts of Caesar. So he took Caesar's doubts about the Rubicon and he submerged them or drowned them. There's a little bit of a watery metaphor here. Rubicon, get it? Drowned the doubts of Caesar, promising him that if a guy is ready, he always harms himself with further delays. And that's that Florentine retranslation of the Latin line from the Pharsalia. Delay is always lethal to those prepared. Dante himself quotes this line in a letter to the emperor, well, who he hopes will become the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII. I guess he does become it, but it's a little fudgy. We're going to talk a lot more about Henry VII later on down the road in comedy. He gets does get crowned Holy Roman Emperor, but it's not in necessarily the way the Papal States recognizes that crown. It's all fudged up. And finally, Henry VII, even after he descends into Italy, and we've talked about this, is Dante's great hope, but then actually dies and Dante's hopes are dashed that the Holy Roman Empire is going to uh, save the Italian peninsula from the papal and French designs on it. He quotes this very line in his letter.
letter to Henry VII. This, he always harms himself, um, if you're ready, he always harms himself with further delays. He quotes it in the Latin. So we know that this line is very important if Dante quotes it in an epistle and also puts it in comedy. And again, I just want to underscore. This is one of the most quoted Latin lines in the Middle Ages outside of the Vulgate translation of the Bible. It is absolutely used in crusade rhetoric. It is absolutely used in all kinds of war rhetoric. You know, if you're ready, don't delay because the delay is what's going to kill you. It's here put in Curio's mouth because Lucan put it in Curio's mouth. One more observation about this passage before we get out to some larger implications. The passage ends, how forlorn he seemed to me. Actually, it begins with an interjection. Oh, how forlorn he seemed to me with his tongue cut out way down in his throat, this Curio who used to speak so fearlessly. I mean, I think that that is the opposition that is important for hell. That is people who used to be extremely forthright in their opinions, extremely certain in what they think, end up in hell forlorn and full of fear. I mean, up top, Curio was fearless, went to Sicily, counseled Caesar, spurred on the civil war, thus the political schisms, all of that utterly fearless, went to Africa and died there in battle in Africa. And now he ends up here forlorn. And it just seems to me that over and over again, from Brunetto Latini to the three Florentine homosexuals, so many people end up in hell in this state. They were fearless up above, and they are forlorn now. There are some who don't seem to have this journey. Farinata doesn't seem all that forlorn since he holds the pains of hell in disdain. Jason, walking around that pit being whipped by the demons, doesn't seem that forlorn. Ulysses doesn't seem that forlorn. These figures stand out because the common journey of the damned is to go from fearlessness to desperation. Let's talk about some implications we can draw from this passage. Pierre da Medicina and Curio are both political figures who are embracing a kind of political turmoil and tribalism, we would say using modern words, whereas other figures in this pit, Mohammed, Ali, and who Mohammed mentions, Fra Dolcino, are all religious figures who put the unity of the faith to question. There's a way in which this can kind of get funky on you. You can say, are all of the political figures, the schismatics, and all of the religious figures, those who work in scandal, that is, remember the Greek word skandalon, meaning stumbling block, are the political figures schismatics and the religious figures we would say scandal mongers, those who throw stumbling blocks in the way of the faithful. Or is that too easy a division? And is, in fact, schism and scandal kind of fused together in this pouch? I actually don't have an answer to this. It 
could be that schism and scandal are being fused into an unnatural unity. Oh, gosh, do I have to get into the meta-literary implications right here? Into an unnatural unity as the political and religious figures in this pit get fused together, even though their sins are different. After all, up above us, we had the Simoniacs, those who sold church office for money, and then we had the Barretors, those who sold political office for money and bribes. So they were split into different pits. But here in this pit, the political and the religious are fused together in a pit about tribalism and division. Interesting, right? Is it that one is the schismatic, the political and the religious or the scandal mongers? Or is it even more fused and confused than that? I have a feeling it's the latter. I don't have a firm-footed answer to this, but I have a feeling it's the latter. It's more confused and homogenous than that. And that homogeneity inside the pit causes interpretive stumbles throughout the pit as you move from the political to the religious figures. Okay, a second implication. Notice that so many of these scandal mongers and schismatics still are making scandals and schisms. After all, Muhammad says, go up and warn Fra Dolcino. Brother Dolcino, he better stock up on his supplies before the Novaries get him as he's holed up in the mountains. Here, Pierre da Medicina forces Curio's mouth open and speaks for him. They seem to take a certain delight in the schisms, or they take an ongoing pleasure in the schisms of the world above, or, and this is a contrary point, or with Mohammed and Fra brother, Fra Dolcino, are they wanting somehow to repent or heal their schisms in some way? What he says, what Muhammad says is Fra Dolcino better stock up on provisions. So he doesn't seem to want to stop the coming civil war between papal forces and the apostolic brethren over their heretical stance. doesn't seem to want to solve that. He seems to just want it to continue. At least that's how it seems to me. It seems to me that even here with Pierre da Medicina, they, they seem to still want to do this. Oh, here's Curio. <laughs> Look at him. He did this thing, this terrible thing, and and goaded on Caesar to destroy the Republic and create the Empire. They seem to take a certain delight in pointing out further schisms. And Pierre de Medicina does this with those two guys, Guido and Agnolello. He seems to take a certain delight in tribalism. And I don't have to push this into our world very far, do I? The way that we are being forced gleefully into various political camps through pundits and political commentators, much like Dante's own day, in which we are being encouraged to balkanize, to tribalize, to hold to a position and hold it all costs, no matter what. And those goading us onto that tribalism, those, dare I say, schismatics that make up the pundit class across Western popular culture, they seem to take a certain delight in the schisms themselves, a pleasure in riling up the base. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> Not to tell you too much about myself, but you can follow me on Twitter, but you'll see I'm 
pretty leftist, and I got a pretty leftist political slant, all things considered. You know, I get on Twitter, and Twitter becomes this echo chamber in which I can feel my own opinions being reinforced over and over and over again until I rile myself up into craziness. I have discovered that the only way I can survive being on Twitter is being on it a limited amount of time. I literally put an app that limits my time on social media platforms each day, and I have my Twitter app app limit set at 20 minutes. That's all I can be on it because otherwise I find myself balkanizing, tribalizing, becoming enraged, and I just have a feeling that many people are attempting to enrage me and many others for the clicks, for the likes, for the sheer enjoyment of being noticed. One last implication from this passage. Dante is an idealist. As I have already told you, Dante's great political hope is that Rome will be divested of much of its wealth, that the papal states will become much less powerful in a worldly sense, will be purified in a spiritual sense, sounds a lot a lot like the apostolic brethren and Fra Dolcino, but okay, be purified in a secular sense, and that there will come a rational, reasonable, learned, political figure who will balance papal power. And this balance between an earthly figure and a papal figure, an earthly ruler and a, uh, and a religious leader will form the basis of the new and good society. Without a doubt, Dante is an unbelievable idealist. And let me just say that idealism always leads to ambivalence. It is the very heart of ambivalence. When you believe something strongly and it is kind of divorced from the terrestrial world up into the world of ideas, I guarantee you that you are constantly going to fight the battles of ambivalence. And we fight them here with Dante in comedy. Let me explain. We've already met Julius Caesar. He was in limbo. Go back. He's in line 123 of Canto 4, the limbo canto. We're told he is armed or in his armor and with falcon eyes at line 123. Julius Caesar, he's in hell. It may be the best part of hell, but it is still hell. Why? Because Dante himself holds to the ideal of the Roman Republic. The Republic is what Dante wishes for, this form of government with an enlightened leader that has a Senate, that is this kind of pseudo-democratic, we don't want to use the word democratic too loosely, but pseudo-democratic voting body. This is Dante's ideal and that there will be a learned, good political figure at the head of it. Well, Julius, Julius broke the Republic and ultimately brought in the empire. But here's the other part of the ambivalence. There is no birth of Jesus, the Messiah, without the empire, not the Republic, but the empire. You see, this split 
is Dante's from Lucan and Virgil. Dante's two great sources, well, plus Ovid and the Metamorphoses, but two great sources for Roman history. Virgil, the poet who is the great orator of the Roman Empire and whose hymn to the founding of the empire and ultimately to Augustus is the great epic, the Aeneid, that Dante holds so dear. But he also holds Lucan so dear. And in the Pharsalia about the Civil War, Julius is not very positively portrayed. Pompey is definitely the sympathetic figure in the Pharsalia. Dante is basing his political opinions on previous authorities. And just like idealism leads to ambivalence, holding on to various authoritative stances from the past will lead you to deep ambivalence because those sources will contradict each other ultimately, like Lucan and Virgil in their attitude toward Caesar. All of these things are going to come to a head at the bottom of hell, and we're going to find out at the very bottom of hell more about Dante's attitude toward Julius Caesar. That attitude will become more complex and then even more complex as we begin to ascend Purgatorio because there is a kind of idealism that Dante is holding that is leading him toward a fundamental ambivalence as it does to all of us. And for most of us humans on this planet, that ambivalence born out of idealism brings on rage. That ambivalence ultimately will become so irritating for an idealist that rage is the natural response for Dante, and I don't want to tell you too much of the road ahead, but for Dante, he will find a way out of his rage. And this is what makes Dante so astounding. An idealist who will turn, finally, even in the next passage, in this very canto, to rage, but find his way out of that rage. He's already expressed it with Filippo Argenti. He's already expressed it by putting Pope Nicholas III in hell and seeing other popes coming to hell. He's already engaged his rage, which is a function of his ambivalence based on his idealism about how the world should but doesn't operate. And yet, Dante the poet will ultimately find away out of his rage. To get to that, you have to subscribe to the long haul of this podcast. We've got lots more passages ahead, including a passage of rage coming up right next in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So subscribe, rate the podcast, even a rating like Great Podcast does wonders. I'm sorry if I'm not sometimes perfectly clear. I'm also trying to do this a little bit on the fly. I don't actually write scripts out. Instead, I write really detailed notes, and then I want to play with them as I talk because more ideas occur to me as this all happens. It's fun to do it this way. It's not totally scripted. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek at times, those silly voices after all. It's a lot of fun. Come on the journey with me. 
grab a glass of wine, bourbon, iced tea, seltzer, whatever you drink, and let's keep walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.